Well, thank you, Matt, and good morning, everyone. You know, what's really remarkable about being back in this space is that a good number of people are actually sitting fairly proximate to where they would have been a year ago. <laughs> and we did actually make the point with our ushers, and thank you to the team that did such a good job. Um, some people like to sit in certain places because the sound is more receptive for them in terms of their hearing or perhaps there are other reasons. And so, uh, as I look around, I see people pretty much where I expect to see them. <laughs> and of course, we welcome others who have joined us today who are new amongst us. It's so special to be together. Matt has already expressed appreciation to those who have brought along children who are part of our service. What a joy it is to be able to celebrate as a whole family, which involves people from this end of the age spectrum and that age, uh, end of the age spectrum and we are totally relaxed about having uh, families together and wherever you're sitting, that is fantastic. I'm sitting in a different spot altogether. In fact, it's been quite a few years since I've sat amongst the musicians. The last time I did it, I was sitting next to a guy playing the bass guitar whose name was Phil. And uh, partway through the, the service, I thought, what would happen if I pulled that chord <laughs> out of his guitar? And, and so I did. It took him at least two or three minutes to figure it out. So, uh, you're safe up there, Bob. You're okay. <laughs> It'll be okay. I was reflecting on the fact that it's, ha it's probably, it's close to two years ago, in fact, the first time I stood here and preached as, as your new pastor. It was a rather unusual set of circumstances in so much as it had been organised that I preached before I was inducted which was a very clever move on the part of the search committee because if I was no good, they still had a week to say <laughs> on your bike. And equally for me, the opportunity, if I didn't like the people that I saw, for me to say, whoops, <laughs> big mistake. But for those of you who were here on that occasion, you might remember the topic of the message was based around the, uh, the people of Israel crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land and the manner in which God opened the way for them and then the manner in which God closed the way behind them. And that re-running of the river when the Jordan closed behind them, in some senses it was a bookmark, if you like, in their history. The past is closed and you can't go back there. And that's actually really quite significant because sometimes we long to go back there, don't we? And I'm sure that there were people amongst the people of Israel who looked back even to those wilderness years and said, that wasn't so bad. And part of the intention in preaching that message then was to say, though we honour the past, uh, we have crossed a river and we are moving into a new future and in a very real sense we're in that place today as we regather. There are perhaps some amongst us who would look back and say, I just wish it was the way it was but it's never going to be the way it was. God has moved us as a community forward into a new time uh, with new opportunities. And sometimes that's quite difficult. I was actually sorely tempted to preach that passage again this morning for that very reason that I've explained, that we are, in some senses, entering new land as a congregation. 
and doing things quite differently to the way that we've done them before. There are some promises for us as we move ahead, but there are some significant challenges that we have to face and we have to live with in this, uh, in this time that we move into. For example, this would be the first time I remember ever having to sign in to go to church, <laughs> right? And to tell you the truth as a person who values my privacy, I find that just a little bit confronting. And so we've set it up so that it's not using the government app, it's using our own so that we can manage that ourselves and not have, uh, have any other interference in that space. We've never had to worry about social distancing in church before and if that's been a headache for you, trust me, it's been a headache for us as well. I have though have to, I do have to acknowledge that uh, the Wodongan District Baptist Church, we are so blessed with the, the arrangement of our space. The distance between you and the pew in front is really quite generous by comparison to some other churches. For example, in the church that I was ministering in a few years back, back there in, uh, where was that now? Uh, Warrnambool. <laughs> <laughs> that, that first Sunday I was so worried I was going to say Warrnambool when I was in Wodonga. Now it's the other way around. The pews were so close, we had to have them close uh, so that we could get the people in. And you might have heard of the, uh, the business principle of success, the five P's of success, proper preparation prevents poor performance. You know if you sit on the end of a pew, there are what I call the five P's of uh, church seating. The procession of posteriors as people push past. <laughs> and that's one of the things we had to live with in that context. And we may laugh at some of these things, but Matt has already alluded to and led us really well in acknowledging that actually there are some things that are quite painful in this space too and have been quite painful in this space. There are people that we have been used to seeing who are not able to be with us for various reasons. In some cases because they've moved, in some cases because of quite acute medical conditions. Ministries that we are familiar with have not recommenced. Rhythms that we're familiar with uh, have not necessarily been the same. And the point I want to make in all this is to say we going through an experience of change carries with it a certain degree of pain and that is true of any change. I used to have a friend I met with a few years back whose name was David. He was a bit of an entrepreneur kind of a character and we would meet together and talk about life or I should say we would meet together and he would talk about life and, uh, and he would say, I love change, you know, bring it on, I, I, just, I'm, I welcome change, every new idea, every new thing and I'd be sitting there thinking, man, what is wrong with you? Because for many of us, even minor change brings a degree of pain and grief because we leave other things behind, don't we? We're familiar with the change of losing a loved one and the grief in that space but simple change, changing a job for instance, there's anticipation and excitement in that new space but there's often grief too in the loss of familiarity and connection. All change brings pain and on reflecting on this uh, reality, Julius Caesar, I don't think I've ever quoted him in church, once said, it's easier to find men who will volunteer to die than to find those who are willing to endure pain with patience. It's rather interesting, isn't it? And so there's a reticence, there's this reluctance on our part sometimes uh, to experience pain and the change 
that can bring pain can be quite difficult. So the question that you might be wondering is why speak like this today? Well, uh, a couple of reasons. First of all, I might say how much I've been looking forward to our regathering, how much we as a staff team and, and church leadership have been looking forward to our regathering for the opportunity to give thanks to God for the manner in which he has sustained us through this past 10 months, to worship with other people. I would confess to you there for a, for a moment, over, overwhelming emotion even in this space. This is coming from me. Uh, that's unusual. But just that sense of the wonderful unity in being able to worship with others, it is fantastic to be able to do that. But I also speak to you as one who has, and I've said this before, an abiding dislike of Christian triumphalism. This is the idea that, you know, come to Jesus and your life will be rosy and wonderful. It's that kind of prosperity theology idea that if you, if you, uh, if Jesus is Lord of your life, everything you'll be wanting will be poured out upon you. That is not how it works. And even as God's people, as we have walked faithfully through these weeks and months, there's been difficult things that we've had to face. Uh, as pastors, we've had to sit down with people who've lost loved ones through this pandemic period and they've not been able to travel to go to their funerals. We've sat with people, uh, I see some of them here today, who planned for a lovely big family gathering at their weddings and their gathering went from here to here to here to here to here to here in terms of who could come. And the dates that they'd said have gone from here to here to here to here, further and further out. And there's been loss and grief in that space. Some of our friends have been socially isolated because of concerns for their health. Uh, all sorts of stuff. For the first time in my life, I realised how much I rely on lip reading and my hearing's good. We go into a shop and there's a screen, what, what do they call those things, perspex barrier, kind of a nuclear fallout bunker thing <laughs> and, uh, and you've got a person wearing a mask and they say something to you and it's like <laughs> and I say, I beg your pardon because I can't understand what they're saying. I use my eyes to interpret their mouths. There are people amongst us who are hearing challenged and for them it's been such a difficult time. I never thought about that before. And there has been lots of grief in this space, uh, married to, of course, the wonderful blessing of having a God who has been with us. What does the scripture say into this place? Well, as Matt has uh, alluded to, has actually said directly, hasn't alluded to this, we're going to spend a little bit of time over these next five weeks looking at some of the Psalms of Ascent. And I invite you to read with me Psalm 121 right now. Psalm 121 is actually the second of the Psalms of Ascent. We went straight to this one because it was such an encouraging psalm and it's a psalm that speaks so directly into the space that we're in as we journey together with God into the future. Psalm 121 says, and you'll see the words, the first couplet here, I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. 
The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Back in the days when I was teaching, seems like the dark ages now, um, we used to go on school camps. How many people went on school camps when they were at school? Or if you're at school now, school camps are still a thing, right? And we would go on a bus. I remember doing one camp on one occasion from, uh, where were we? Robinvale up there on the Murray River downstream from here, uh, across to Canberra. It was about eight hours in the bus. Fantastic with 30 or 40 grade six children. <laughs> what do you do? during that time, well, one of the activities that was quite common was for them to sing. And they didn't sing the songs that Bethany sang. They had, uh, we still had music in schools in those days, I guess there still is for that matter, Uh, and they would sing those songs and they would sing those songs ad infinitum. And I just so take my hat off to the bus driver (laughs) because he had to put up with this stuff. And let me just tell you, they were not always that cordant or they were more particularly discordant, some of those singing Uh, the kids would mutilate the songs. And in some senses, um, you can imagine the people of Israel as they travelled, not by bus but on foot, uh, from their homes, wherever their homes might be, perhaps in Galilee, down through uh, the Jordan Valley to Jericho and then up to Jerusalem. We talk about Mount Zion, Jerusalem. It's about a 1,000 metres in elevation difference from the valley to the top. They would walk up that road Uh, the the rough road, the road that Jesus alluded to in his story of the Good Samaritan, a narrow track through the Wadi, what's known now as Wadi Kelp, uh, a a winding, difficult path, and they would sing these songs as they went. And these psalms functioned in much the same way that our songs function today. They affirmed the goodness of God. They embedded their theology uh, in the words of those songs. They affirmed... Uh, things about God and help the people uh, be reminded of truth. And as I was reading this Psalms, uh, and particularly verse 1, I lift my eyes to the hills while we were working in Papua New Guinea. We were up high in the mountains. And in the afternoons during the rainy season, uh, we would always look to the mountains to see which way the rain was going to come from. I still very clearly remember occasions where we'd be out. I used to play sport with the students on Thursday afternoons and we'd be out on the sporting fields, a good couple of acres of flat ground and you'd look to the mountains, you could see the storms come rolling over the mountains and you could say, well, it's going to be on us in just a few minutes. You could hear the rumble of the thunder and then you would see the rain and then you would hear the rain, which is a really interesting experience. You could hear it coming. And you would think, I'm going to have to really get moving, uh, otherwise I'm going to get soaked. And here we have uh, the psalmist saying a very similar kind of thing, I lift my eyes to the mountains, to the hills, uh, a reference we believe to Mount Zion, not to see where the rain might come from, but to acknowledge where his help comes from, where the author's help comes from. It's a rather interesting reference because in the ancient Near East, mountains were typically understood as the dwelling places of the gods. That's where the gods would be found, typically. Not always, there were uh, gods to be found in rivers and trees and all sorts of places. But typically the high places, that's where temples of worship, pagan altars were built. And in a positive sense, not a negative sense, 
uh, the Lord God, Yahweh, was associated with mountains. Two in particular, who can tell me which two? Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Now, two very significant differences between those two theologically. You remember Mount Sinai where God gave the law? The mountain covered in thunder and and, and clouds and there was a fence around the bottom of Sinai to stop the people accidentally stepping onto the mountain, to stop the people from going up Sinai. Contrast that to Mount Zion which in the scripture is understood as the mountain to which the nations will flock and the epicentre of Zion, the epicentre of Jerusalem of course is what happened when Jesus Christ was crucified in that place, the epicentre of God's work, the centre of God's activity in salvation. It's to that place that the nations are drawn, that's where the people will go. Interesting contrast between those two mountains. But you'll notice in the psalm that the psalmist lifts his eyes to the mountains but his help doesn't actually come from the mountain, his help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. Now there's some obvious applications that we might make from that and that is this, the psalmist recognised that it didn't matter where he or she was, uh, the Lord's help was there. You didn't have to be in Zion, you didn't have to be on the mountain for God to be your helper. God is a helper anywhere and that is true for us today, isn't it? Our God is with us anywhere, he's with us by his spirit no matter where we go. On occasions I remember in the past I used to work in an office that, uh, that opened into the church foyer and then into the church building and people would occasionally just come in off the street and they would say, would you mind if I just went into the church to pray for a while? And typically they did that because it was a quiet space, it was a private place and it was a place that kind of invested a little bit of awe and reverence because it was a, a, a quite a pleasant sort of a building environment. And so that's where they would go to pray. But they didn't have to go there to pray, did they? Because we know that we can pray anywhere we are. We don't have to meet in a certain place, like the ancients believed that they had to do. We don't have to go to a particular mountain to meet with God because our God is our help wherever we happen to be. And significantly too in this psalm, and it's something that may slip under our radar a little bit, two words in verse 2, God is both helper and maker of heaven and earth. Now back in the ancient times, uh, people would look to their gods for help. They would go to the God of, uh, of the fields for help when they were doing their crops. They would go to the God of the river when the river was running dry. They would go to the God of the trees when they needed firewood. They would look to their God for help and often they found their gods were powerless to help. And a God who wants to help but doesn't have the power is pretty useless, right? But equally too, a God who might stand over all of creation but not want to help is not much use either. But what we find here in the Lord is a God who is both over all and willing to be part of all. God who is maker of heaven and earth but God who is also our helper. That's quite an astonishing thought when you think about it, isn't it? I don't know if you've reflected on that recently, but just imagine this God who created this marvellous creation, this beautiful world that we live in, is the one who wants to help us in our strife, in our trouble, in the challenges that we face, the one who journeys with us 
through whatever we might be facing in life, the God who is intimately involved in the most personal of our interactions in life. In verse uh, 3, if we just jump down there a little bit further, another pot shot is taken at the, at the pagan gods that were very uh, prevalent at this time because it tells us here in verse 3, uh, the Lord will not let your foot slip. That's an interesting reference too. If you're walking up that, uh, that route from Jericho to Jerusalem, you do not want to slip, let me tell you. When I did a tour there at one stage, and Darren, I haven't seen Darren this morning, Darren was there with us, uh, there was a, an older gentleman whose lifelong ambition was to walk that road and our tour guides did the very best that they could to talk him out of doing it because it was a dangerous road. If your foot slipped, there was a risk on occasion of sliding down into a very, very deep ravine. The psalmist, as they, as they were singing this song of ascent, acknowledged that God would not let your foot slip. God will not let you stumble and then in verse 3, uh, this is the thing I wanted to come to, he who watches over you will not slumber. Uh, and then verse 4, indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, of course, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible story, that will uh, remind you of the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? Remember this story? This, what really is a power encounter between Baal and the Lord God? And Elijah, who feels he's the only one left, <clears throat> the only prophet of, uh, of the Lord, which actual fact wasn't the case, but Elijah did have a few uh, issues, <laughs> let's just say. But in that moment, uh, Elijah said, let's have a showdown. Let's see whose God is real. You guys build your altar, do all your stuff, call on Baal, get him to send fire, see what happens. And that's what they did. And they did it and they did it and they did it and nothing happened. And then around midday, the scripture tells us, interestingly, midday, because the ancients believed that the gods took an afternoon nap. In fact, the ancients believed in, in Old Testament times that not only did the gods take an afternoon nap, they had very real human needs, or, or should I say needs very similar to humans. They needed to eat, they needed to drink, they needed to sleep, they needed to use the convenience, it's, let's be generous, uh, they did the sort of stuff that we did. They took an afternoon nap. And so we know from history that people were very reluctant to go into the pagan temples in the afternoon lest they disturb the gods because the gods were, have, the gods were ha having their afternoon kip. And so at noon, uh, when the prophets of Baal had been doing their stuff, uh, Elijah, what does he say to them? Well, maybe, uh, maybe he's on holidays... Maybe he's, um, he's indisposed. The Hebrew actually does say maybe Baal's uh, taking a... Um, maybe he's asleep. <laughs> See the link with, uh, with the world around and the psalmist affirming that God is so unlike any of those other gods. He doesn't take a sleep. He doesn't need to take a sleep. He's above all of that stuff. He's the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. There's a story that Charles Spurgeon told, which I found rather, rather nice. It was of a poor Eastern woman who came to the Sultan one day and asked for some compensation for the loss of some property. The Sultan said, how did you lose it? And she said, I fell asleep 
and a robber came and entered my dwelling. Well, the sultan was a little bit incensed. He said, why did you fall asleep? And the woman looked at him and said, well, I, I fell asleep because I knew that you were awake. And the sultan, who was so impressed by her answer, compensated her. Interesting little story, isn't it? She was able to relax because she believed that the ruler, in this case the sultan, uh, was actually watching over everything. And so too, the point of that story is for us, we can relax into whatever space that we might find ourselves in because we know that God doesn't fall asleep on the job. We know also uh, from verse 5, the Lord watches over you, he is your shade at your right hand. Now here again, a little bit of history is rather interesting because in the, in the ancient Near East they had these Roland symbols, uh, but they called them shields. And when they went into battle, typically, Matt, would you just mind jumping up here for a second? I know you're just doing a little family intervention there for a second, but if you could just stand over this side for me. Uh, typically, this is going to be hard on the camera, sorry. You guys are okay up there? Typically, what would happen is the soldier would carry his shield in his left hand and so was protected from attacks coming from this side. So I'm feeling safe from Jim over here. Uh, I probably should be holding it on this side because the recidivists tend to sit over this side, but um, typically I'm safe on this side. And so, historically we know, a soldier would actually look for a good right-hand man. <laughs> this is where the expression comes from, because you are exposed on the right-hand side. And so you would look for a soldier who was on your side with his, uh, on your right-hand side with his shield and he might be generous enough to loan you some of the space or the shade from his shield if they were, no, he probably wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, depends how he's feeling, uh, whether things are going okay at home or not. Um, but thank you, you can sit down, you can take that with you too if you don't mind, thank you. Um, <laughs> I will put that back later but it hasn't come from Beth so it's okay. Here's the point, Psalm 121 reminds us that God is our protection where we are most vulnerable. And that's really significant. God is our shield where we are most at risk of harm, wherever that might be. He is our shield on our right, he is the shade on our right hand, the sun, it tells us in verse 6, will not harm you by day nor the moon by night, is a rather strange reference, I'm not sure that I've ever suffered from uh, moon burn, I've certainly had my share, my wife's actually away at the moment, unfortunately, would love to have been here, uh, she might even be watching, I better be careful. Um, <laughs> she's actually the one who normally moderates what I say, so. Um, I have had my share of sunburn, there I've said it, uh, but not moonburn. What's this reference to? The moon harm you at night? Well, again, uh, in the ancient Near East, there, were, there was a belief of the activity of what we might call nefarious gods at night time. But perhaps metaphorically in this space, the psalmist is simply saying, there is nothing that's going to harm you. There is nothing that's going to overwhelm you when God is your protection. Years ago, uh, when I was in Sunday school, which again is back in the, well, it's almost the ancient Near East, um, at the same sort of time, we used to sing a little song, uh, and I'm really glad we don't sing it anymore, but some of you might know it. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Yeah. Don't, please don't sing it. <laughs> I'll tell you why, because 
a lot of the songs that we sing are embedded with great theology, but not that one. You think about that one for a second. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, because the Father up above is looking down. It's kind of like God's a school principal, isn't it? Watching down on you, just waiting for you to make a mistake. So watch out. That's, that's poor theology. Okay, we've got a God who judges, we understand that. But we've got to be careful with that kind of theology. This is not what this psalm is suggesting. The Lord watches over us, yes, but it's actually a caring watching over. It is a protecting watching over. It is a looking after watching over. In fact, if you have a look through uh, this psalm, you'll see the word watch is mentioned time and time again. Verse uh, 3 watches over you. Verse 4 watches over Israel. Verse 5 watches over you. Verse uh, 7 will keep you from all harm. Watch over your life. Verse 8, the Lord will watch over your coming and going. If you notice, the psalmist is actually so focused on the fact that God is the one who will protect you in whatever circumstances of life. He doesn't even bother describing what those challenges might be. He doesn't talk about what the dangers might be. His eyes are so focused on God, the protector and the carer and the provider. The other stuff fades into insignificance because they don't matter anymore. They still have an impact, yes, they still press in on us, they, they still challenge us, but God is able to overcome all of those things and the psalmist focuses on that. And when we have that kind of posture, it gives birth to the kind of faith that we see through the scriptures that gives birth to uh, incredible acts of obedience. It must have been the kind of faith that Moses had when he confronted Pharaoh how could you do that without knowing that God was watching over you? It must have given birth to the kind of faith that helped Israel occupy the land or David challenge Goliath or the disciples drop their nets and follow Jesus or Paul praise God even in the midst of being in the prison. And it's true as it was for them, for us today, that if we grab hold of that, if we genuinely grab hold of this kind of faith, knowing that God sustains us, watches over us, no matter what circumstances we encounter as we move into the future, individually, as families or as a church, then God, is God, God has that in hand. This uh, past year has been quite a challenge in the life of the church, in the life of many members and we hope in many respects that today ushers in a new era of life and expectancy and spiritual growth, activity of God's spirit amongst us, a dependence on him for what we need, a reliance on him to lead us into new opportunities of ministry in our community, new ways to encounter people in our neighbourhood, new ways to invest into the part of this part of the world that we live. <clears throat> and it will happen in God's time, even in the midst of the change and the pain that goes with that. And it was Susanna Spurgeon, it's worth quoting Spurgeon's family in this, the wife of Charles Spurgeon, who said, How wise should we be if with joyful certainty we accepted each unfolding of his will as proof of his faithfulness and love. If we can look at every circumstance that we encounter as an example of God's faithfulness and love being demonstrated to us, as he sustains us in those places, how wise we will be. Let's pray. 
Lord, we want to thank you that you are the God who watches over your people, the God who is the maker of heaven and earth, the one who not only is intimately engaged with our every need and activity and life, but the God who is the maker of heaven and earth and so has the capacity and the ability to do that. Lord, you are the one God worthy of our praise. You are the one God that we want to worship. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for what you have done for us in loving us so much that you died for us for the life that you have invested in us through your spirit, for the activity of your spirit in the life of your church. God, we depend upon you. We've always depended upon you. Help us today continue that humble dependence in fresh ways with new opportunities that you open before us to walk obediently into that space, to trust you as you grow us in your love and grace. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.